0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit Stripe.com slash tap iPhone. This is the TED Radio Hour. and NPR. I'm Manoush Zamorodi, and today on the show, in a time of crisis, who do we put first? Ourselves or the greater good? How do we decide what we're willing to fight for and what sacrifices have to be made? Well, it can depend on where you live. My name's Yan Chong. I was born and raised in Beijing. I'm right now walking down the street in my neighborhood in Chaoyang District, Beijing. Yan is a photographer, and in her hometown of Beijing, the greater good means following strict pandemic protocols. Entering a lot
1: of
2: places still requires different kinds of proof that we're in good
0: health or we haven't been to any. High-risk areas. So, for example, before she can order a drink at her local bar, Yen has her temperature checked and scans a QR code on her phone. The person in front of me just left, so
2: now it's my turn to do it.
1: No, mock for it.
0: The QR code tells the government where she's been for the past 14 days. Her phone lights up green, so she can enter. But if her phone had flashed red, indicating that she'd been traveling overseas, Yen would need to report to a state-run quarantine location. If it flashed yellow, meaning she'd been in an infected area, well, that would require her to quarantine at home for two weeks with an electronic sensor installed on the door or paper tape sealing the door shut. Break the tape or activate the sensor, and a neighborhood committee alerts the government that she broke the rules.
1: I told that to my American friends. They're like, oh my God, how can you live with that? That so infringes on everything that we believe in, in individual rights and so on and so
0: forth. This is Wang Hung. She's been called the Oprah Winfrey of China. I'm a writer. I'm a
1: columnist in China. uh, Most of my writing are in Chinese. However, I am actually a U.S. citizen. And I've been living in China since 1991, so for quite some time. So, you know, I walk into a shopping mall and I have to say, I'm glad. I feel safer that there is a scanning system. It is for the greater good. The Chinese kind of realize in time of crisis, it is necessary to bound together. And whatever inconvenience happens, um, you need to be able to tolerate it. You need to work with other people. You need to support the collective rather than just think for yourself.
0: In China, this collective mindset means the government can enforce systems like tracking its citizens during a pandemic. But there are costs to taking these measures, like privacy and other civil liberties. On the other hand, not acting collectively in a crisis can be lethal. More than 100,000 lives have already been lost to COVID-19 in the U.S., and those numbers skew disproportionately towards people of color, largely because of systemic inequalities that go back centuries. So how can we right these wrongs and protect the well-being of the most people possible? today on the show, four different ideas about how to act for the greater good, and what our behavior can say about our convictions, our culture, and our history.
1: The Chinese have always had a ruler, a, an emperor. And this kind of system, which is a Confucian system of an emperor, has not changed for almost 5,000 years. Hmm. So for the Chinese, it's not strange to have a one-party rule. It's not strange not to have elections, because for 5,000 years, they have never had an election. I think that most people have an image of Chinese people almost being enslaved, and completely unhappy. Mm. But it is ironic for me that you take China, where the government is not elected. But during the pandemic, everybody will do what the government wants them to do, be it lockdown, be it testing temperatures, whereby in the West, you have Elected governments, these governments are actually voted in by the people. But anything that the government say, the, the people will not listen to. And I find that to be something very ironic. And It's
0: fascinating.
1: It's fascinating. Yes, it is fascinating. You know, what does this say about... How a authoritarian government, when it carries on for 5,000 years, can shape a certain culture of conformity. And is that conformity necessarily bad?
0: Hmm. There are those who say that despite this uh, concept of collective good, that the Chinese government did not act quickly enough to contain the virus and that deaths were unreported or undercounted, that there was an attempt to protect the government from outside eyes, from seeing that they did not act quickly enough. It sounds like there's a tension between what the people trust their government to do and what the Chinese government actually does to uh, protect its leaders. I
1: think there's a strange misunderstanding that A totalitarian government, an authoritarian government, a one-party system, namely the Chinese government, does not communicate to its people. And it does not bend to the will of its people. So this, I have to say, is not quite true because the Chinese government is actually quite aware of public opinion. So when confronted with massive amount of complaint and protest on social media, Mm -hmm. the government has the ability to change its decision. And we've seen that during the pandemic, when the government changed its verdict on
0: Dr. Lee. Mm. So... You're referring to this doctor, Li Wenliang, who first sounded the alarm about coronavirus in China. Yes. And the government initially condemned him as a whistleblower and tried to censor the news of the outbreak. But they later changed their narrative and celebrated him as a hero after he died of COVID-19. Yes. And this, the
1: Chinese government does, not because it wants to change its mind, but because it realized on the night of the death of Dr. Lee, that it had to do it. So the government
0: actually does react to public opinion. Yeah, but doesn't it seem like there's this really thin line between whether the government is simply listening to the people or if it's actually trying to save face in light of a major blunder after overreaching and censoring too much? It's the same thing.
1: But in either way, what it is, is a government reacting to public opinion. Mm.
0: Huh. I, You know, I guess what I'm also thinking of are the instances where people tried to express dissent and were silenced and punished. For example, our own uh, Emily Fang, NPR's Emily Fang, has reported on how Wuhan residents were threatened by the police and silenced after they tried to sue the Chinese government for the way things were handled there. Lawyers were told to stop their pro bono work on these cases. Um, and, and so when people are silenced... And fear-stricken in this way, you can't really make a generalization that the Chinese population is happy with the government's course of action, right? I agree. I agree. I agree
1: that these incidences are very worrisome and there are huge holes in the Chinese justice system in the way that the Chinese local police actually carry out justice and um, enforces um, justice. Um, and these are problems that exist in Chinese society. There is no way to deny that.
0: And yet, I think it comes back to this idea that you have talked about, which has no translation into the English language. So I wonder if you can explain it to us, and if you think that is the reason why people are are willing to accept some changes. This the word is guai. Did I yes. say it correctly? Yes. Yes. I
1: think. The Chinese are taught to think for greater goods ever since we were born. You need to get good grades, not necessarily for your own benefit, but because you don't want to lose face for your parents, for your family. Mm. And so the collective thinking is very, very deep down. You really are facing a different creature in terms of a nation, and in terms of a race and the people, first of all, China has been homogenized. I mean, it's like 90% of the population is Han. So all I'm saying is that the Chinese government is terribly lucky that they get to rule a people which actually has a culture of collective thinking. Hmm. They have an easier job than Western politicians. Let's put it that way.
0: Mm, yeah, but do you think there could be a middle ground to be found between that collectivist sentiment that you described, but without the extreme measures to enforce it?
1: I think there has to be a middle ground. And and I think this is why US-China relationship is so important that it's not a breakdown because that middle ground is somewhere between the western world and the chinese world. We're all together in the same problem. So it's about the human race either moving on to a higher platform where we recognize our collective good as a human race or we actually die fighting whose system is better. So from that point of view, I do think that the West has a lesson to learn in terms of
0: collective thinking. That's Huang Hung. She's a writer and the publisher of the magazine, I Look. You can hear more of her thoughts at TED.com. Coming up, a very different perspective from political philosopher Danielle Allen, who says protecting the most vulnerable members of a population is essential for the greater good.
2: For me, that is just the bedrock. You start there. And once you commit to not abandoning any
0: subset of your population, you figure out what the pathway is. That's just ahead. I'm Manoush Zomorodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater. Committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 solve food for work. From ordering online for meetings and team lunches to managing food spend for your whole organization, Easy Cater can help you simplify your corporate catering needs. Over 100,000 restaurants nationwide, plus budgeting tools and payment by invoice. Learn more at easycater.com. Trials in multiple states, state and federal charges, plea deals, witness testimony, gag orders. The trials of former President Trump are really hard to keep straight. And that's why we created Trump's Trials, a weekly podcast where we break down the biggest news from each of his legal cases and what it all means for democracy in about 15 minutes. I'm Scott Detrow. Listen to Trump's Trials from NPR.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. And on the show today, different ideas about what it means to act for the greater good. We just heard how authoritarian China is protecting its people during the pandemic. Political philosopher Danielle Allen says that in a democracy, protecting civil liberties like minority rights, it's just as important as saving lives and livelihoods.
2: How, in an emergency, in a crisis, can we make sure that our instinct is we're here to protect everybody? That has to be our first instinct. It's the only stable foundation for a social contract. But let me, so I always, people who know me well know that my anchor for thinking about democracy is the Declaration of Independence, all right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a thing I do, so you'll have to forgive me, I'm gonna go ahead and recite the all-important second sentence because people don't actually pay attention to the whole of it often enough. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable
0: rights. But among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Danielle heads up Harvard University's Safra Center for Ethics. And for her, these individual rights are so important that in the middle of our conversation, she started reciting the Declaration of Independence
2: new government from memory. Laying its foundation on such principle and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, it's the last clause that is the most important. Hmm. The point of our institutions is that the people, the whole people, not a part of the people, lays a foundation on principle and organizes the powers of government to deliver safety and happiness to the whole people. Hmm. Our decision-making should always start from the premise that we do not abandon any subset of our population in a time of crisis. For me, that is just the bedrock. You start there.
0: So Danielle says that acting for the greater good, especially when facing a crisis like a pandemic, means doing a better job living up to American ideals. And those ideals include preserving individual lives, individual rights, and equality.
2: When you face an existential threat, you're saving individual lives, but you're also trying to save the collective life of society. And the society that we are is a constitutional democracy, which means the project of preserving lives, rights and liberties and non-discrimination and due process and equity and things like that. So, you know, we want to survive as the kind of place we are. And that changes the question of what the path to survival consists of.
0: So Danielle and a group of experts across the country came up with a strategy called the Roadmap to Pandemic Resilience. It outlines the steps the U.S. should take to suppress the coronavirus.
2: So how do you stop a viral virus? Mm -hmm. Um, You break the chain of transmission. One way to do that, you know, collective stay-at-home orders do that.
0: But to safely reopen the country, we need much more.
2: Every time somebody tests positive, you want to be finding 25 other people to also test. Um, so you want to find their contacts and test their contacts and test their contacts. And if you have those who test positive go into isolation with support, then you're also taking that virus out of circulation.
0: Contact tracing is happening in cities like New York, but it's a laborious process, even without all the ethical questions that it brings up
2: how do you get people to go get tests? Um, how do you find people's contacts or help people communicate with their contacts to provide them alerts and warnings about exposure? And then you know, literally things like, how do you collect all those samples and accession them and control the data and make sure you have privacy protections and so forth, and then get all those samples to labs that can do high throughput processing. So there's a whole supply chain that involves human organization, yeah. as well as the delivery of testing kits, All of that needed to be conceived and organized. Um, It's a doable thing. Asian countries like South Korea uh, had done this. Taiwan had done this because they thought it through after SARS in 2003.
0: Yeah, but that brings up even more questions about privacy, right? Like I've read how the health authorities in South Korea were collecting and distributing to other citizens vast amounts of personal data. Uh, And now we're seeing that the tech companies are working together to come up with a contact tracing app. How do we handle this privacy piece?
2: So the first thing to do is to sort of think about what are these contact tracing apps? What are their purposes? Their purposes are basically to solve an information problem. So the information problem is to figure out how to let all those people who were unknowingly or unwittingly infected know that that may have happened to them. And that's where the apps seem to come in as a helpful thing. Hmm. So you want to make sure that the data is being stored on individual phones, not in a centralized server, and that it is being sort of deleted on a regular basis. That's really the key
0: thing. Right. It's a real technical challenge. But can you give us some examples of when individuals have been asked to change their behavior to protect the greater good here in the U.S.? And we have been successful.
2: Sure. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. I mean, there's motorcycle helmets. You know, it's, it's a law now. You have to wear a helmet, right? And there was huge resistance. Or even helmets for playing ice hockey. It was the kind of thing where you actually had to have everybody do it in order to take away the stigma from having anybody wear a helmet.
4: Huh.
2: And that's the kind of key point here. Seatbelts is another one, right? huge fights in this country about seatbelt laws. And now, you know, few of us would really even think about not wearing our seatbelts mm-hmm. in a car.
0: How? Can- realistic and likely is it that the roadmap that you have laid out with your colleagues and other extremely reasonable sounding roadmaps generally make sense in a world where we have a government that will actually take the advice of scientists and experts such as yourself? Where do you find yourself sort of living in this moment that, like, these ideas, I think, largely do make sense, and yet they will be politicized in a way that they will likely not be rolled out?
2: So the job of experts is just to provide advice. And it's the job of elected leaders to make judgments. And it's the job of citizens to understand the judgments facing elected leaders, and to share their own opinions about those judgments. And to some extent, I think the notion that we should simply defer to experts It's part of the problem, okay? Mm -hmm. Hides the choice that the leaders have to make and that people should be clear about. So in the face of existential threats, one does need a whole of society response.
0: Right. So this episode that we're working on is about this idea of putting aside what is necessarily the best for you or your immediate family and doing what's right for the greater good. And I guess I wonder, has the American culture of individualism Prepared us for all that we need to do right now. What you have just described, I mean, it requires compliance. The Asian countries that you referenced have a culture of compliance. And of course, earlier, Huang Hong, a writer in China, she explained how authoritarianism well, there are some benefits to it. The culture there is to put the group before the individual.
2: So I would put the questions and issues differently so i don't think it's a question of compliance i think it is a question of civic responsibility we are a very individualistically oriented culture but we are also a culture that understands concepts of civic responsibility and civic duty we are at the end of the day a rights-based society and rights come with responsibilities all right so in knowing what's own status you know if you know you're exposed go get a test and then sharing that alert or warning with others you're actually doing something that's good for yourself for your family and for your community simultaneously so um and this country has deep communitarian traditions i mean this is the country of Tocqueville and barn raising where people gather together to build each other's barns and so it's that sort of civic solidarity civic responsibility that we need to tap into in order to have approaches to health that rest on citizen empowerment Um, So, in fact, what we argue for in our roadmap is not um, a national or federally run contact tracing program. We actually affirm the value of our federalist structure and the importance of localizing uh, contact tracing programs in support of a broad culture of taking responsibility for our own health and health within our communities.
0: Yeah, we still are a decentralized country in many ways, but in light of the protests about racial injustice, How do we balance our health with coming together to address the very real social problems that we have, too?
2: It's a real question, right? Because before the pandemic hit, fewer than 30 percent of Americans age 40 and under considered it essential to live in a democracy. Okay, so (laughs) before the pandemic hit, we already faced a legitimacy crisis, a silent one. And so I have a strong conviction that what a democracy promises is a much higher degree and breadth of human flourishing than an authoritarian regime can ever offer. Hmm. For that reason, I think it's important in the face of an existential threat to preserve a democracy broadly, the broad foundation for the fullest possible pathway to human flourishing. But that is, I think, a case that we have to start almost from scratch making again.
0: So do you think it would be fair to say then that the social contract between the state and its citizens has been, I guess, splintered here in the United States? And maybe the pandemic and now this national conversation about race, could they actually be opportunities to patch it up in some way?
2: So when I talk about the social contract, I'm talking about a relationship among the population of society. So the first social contract is the one that we all have with each other. So that's where I really am interested in this question of you know, who had an instinct when the crisis hit that we don't abandon anybody, that was healthcare workers. And who had an instinct that, oh, well maybe we let this group go or maybe we let that group go. That is at a level of a contract amongst ourselves. That's what's broken then there's a second kind of relationship, which is between the citizenry as a whole and the state. The state is just our vehicle we use for delivering the public goods that we have mutually committed to protecting with one another. And that's a different kind of breakage um, than the breakage of a social contract. Mm. Um, So, you know, it goes back to that point I was making about not abandoning people. We're not actually committed to protecting our whole population. And we do have to address that and face it squarely. If we can't recover that basic idea, then what we're doing isn't really democracy anyway. So we can lose it by slow death, then have to lose it in a dramatic way. But that's, that's pretty fundamental.
0: That's Danielle Allen. She's a political philosopher and director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard. You can find out more about Danielle at ted.npr.org. On the show today, we're talking about the greater good. And we've just heard two very different, very culturally specific perspectives on what it means to look out for our fellow citizens. But what if we didn't think of them as fellow citizens but as members of the same species.
5: Human beings are social mammals. We and our pre-human ancestors have lived in, in groups where we have helped each other within that group. So that capacity is there for all of us, I believe.
0: Peter Singer is probably one of the most famous living philosophers in the world.
5: I'm professor of bioethics in the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University.
0: He's best known for a social movement called effective altruism.
5: Effective altruism is a social movement where people, typically younger people, often students, decided that they wanted to live their lives in a way that would make the world a better place. They thought that was important to give their lives meaning, not simply to enjoy their lives for themselves, but to do things for others. And what is really distinctive from past forms of altruism is that they did some serious research into what different organizations would do with a donation either of, of money or time and, and how much good would that do. And they emphasized the importance of maximizing the value of whatever they were doing and found that in fact... Some, some charities uh, will do hundreds of times more good with $50 or $100 whatever you year than other organizations.
0: Peter Singer picks up this idea of acting globally from the TED stage.
5: Take, for example, providing a guide dog for a blind person. That's a good thing to do, right? Well, right, it is a good thing to do, but you have to think what else you could do with the resources. It costs about $40,000 so that the guide dog can be an effective help to a blind person. It costs somewhere between $20 and $50 to cure a blind person in a developing country if they have trachoma. So you do the sums and you get something like that. You could provide one guide dog for one blind American, or you could cure between 400 and 2,000 people of blindness. I think it's clear what's the better thing to do. So I think reason is not just some neutral tool to help you get whatever you want. It does help us to put perspective on our situation. And I think that's why many of the most significant people in effective altruism have been people who've had backgrounds in philosophy or economics or math. And that might seem surprising because a lot of people think philosophy is remote from the real world. Economics, we're told, just makes us more selfish. And we know that math is for nerds, but in fact, it does make a difference. Yeah,
0: so has the pandemic altered that idea of maximizing the most good you can do with a single act? I mean, many people here in the U.S. are seeing real hardship in their own neighborhoods like never before.
5: Generally speaking, the effective altruism movement is saying it's still better to give to low-income countries than it is to give to affluent countries. Mm. Your, your money will go further and will do more good. And some of the organizations that have been working for many years in, in low-income countries and understand the scene there are doing very good work in terms of just informing people about what they can do to keep themselves safe, mm-hmm. which if you're living in a rural village in Burkina Faso in Africa, you may not have that information. And it may take a non-profit organization to get on the local radio station, which may be the one news source that you have. Now, there's also a quite different thing that a a group of effective altruists have started. And they've set up a website called One Day Sooner. And the idea here is about getting a vaccine that will stop the pandemic. Every day that goes by that we don't have a vaccine, worldwide, thousands of people die. Therefore, if we can get a vaccine one day sooner than we would otherwise get it, we can save thousands of lives. Uh, How can we do that? Well, one of the stages of developing a vaccine is if you've got a promising candidate, looks good, you have to test it to see if it really works. Mm -hmm. And the standard way to test it is to ask for people who would be prepared to get the vaccine and maybe people at higher risk of getting the disease than others, for example, healthcare workers in the case of the pandemic. And you give them the vaccine and then you have a control group of other people in a similar situation who don't get the vaccine, mm-hmm. and you see whether it protects them. But suppose that you had volunteers who said, I'll get the vaccine, and then you can expose me to the to the virus, and we'll see if the vaccine works. Then you would get results very quickly, and you would get the vaccine out, not just one day sooner, but months sooner. And so, in fact, uh, th- this organisation now has, well, had... A couple of days ago when I last checked the website, it had more than 16,000 volunteers who had said they are prepared to do that. They're prepared to take part in, in what's called a, a human challenge trial.
0: We checked again, and there are around 30,000 volunteers hoping to test a COVID-19 vaccine. After the break, Peter Singer on making the difficult calculation of what a human life is worth. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Think you've done it all when it comes to your financial future? Take those investments to the next level with Yahoo Finance. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor X ETFs. Looking to invest? Start
0: your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with X ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specialize in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Zamarodi. On the show today, we're talking about the greater good, especially in this time of a new coronavirus. And for utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer, doing the most good means asking uncomfortable questions, like how do we put a dollar value on a human life?
5: Yes, they are uncomfortable, but of course we do put numbers on saving human lives. That's been happening for many years in various government departments, let's say The Department of Transportation does work to reduce road accidents and has to decide whether re-engineering a dangerous bend where there have been accidents is worth doing or not. And they have a figure that's nine point something million dollars per life saved. In other words, they'll spend nine million dollars to do some road engineering that is expected to save a life over a period of years but they won't spend 10 or 12 million dollars to do that so they're putting a value on life and because we're funding them and we're taxpayers we could say effectively we are doing that too and that's a very high figure by the way by world Mm -hmm. standards because if you look at organizations like the life you can save and give well and the estimates that they put on it you can save a life of a child in a malaria prone region of the world by distributing bed nets and that's going to cost you maybe two or $3,000 to save a life, not $9 million. Because after all, we, we are one world and this virus shows it yet again.
0: You've been talking about effective altruism and advocating for it for a very long time. Has the pandemic tested you in any way? It's, it's, it's pretty much tested everyone, but I wonder how has it tested you? Has it tested your beliefs in any way?
5: No, I don't think it's changed my beliefs. What it shows is that you really do need to be flexible as an effective altruist, not in terms of the ultimate values and goals, but in terms of how has the situation changed and what is the best thing to do now in this different situation. So Mm. it it shows the need to try to find out the information about where you can be most effective. Uh, Mm. Is it better to keep giving to the organizations that were doing the things that of course are still taking lives like malaria or diarrhea or various other conditions and to help people to get themselves economically established and to be able to look after themselves there good NGOs that are doing that. And that's still needing to be done.
0: Yeah. It's interesting whether or not they know it's called effective altruism. I think a lot of Americans are sort of asking themselves very similar questions that you ask your students to, to think about. But I, I wonder, do you think that this experience will compel us us Americans to, to change our worship of individualism to sort of, I don't know, alter the social contract in some way?
5: I think it may be a a force towards rethinking that idea, yes, towards thinking that we can't really just be individualists, that no man is an island, as uh, John Donne said, that we are all in this together, that things that affect others affect me too, and that this is not even just myself, my family, my city, or even my country, but that we need to think on a larger scale. We need to push the circles of our moral concern outwards, and we need to improve things at all of these levels.
0: That's Peter Singer. He's a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. You can find his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, how this moment of crisis has brought up a lot of questions about what it means to act for the greater good.
4: The only way, really, we can get through this is by supporting each other to a greater extent than we have done in living memory.
0: This is writer and activist George Monbiot.
4: We have to come together even more than in wartime to ensure that our neighbours are okay, to ensure that people who have been forgotten by everybody are no longer forgotten, to ensure that highly vulnerable people are not exposed... We have to show solidarity with the vulnerable people in society.
0: And even though the pandemic has exposed our greatest weaknesses in healthcare, in the economy, in our long history with racism, George says we can work together to turn this crisis into what he calls the Great Reset.
4: So we are in a terrible situation, certainly in the US, UK, several other nations where I feel our governments have woefully failed to contain the coronavirus pandemic. Mm. But we also have to try to see the positive side of this horrendous situation, which is to say we learned several things from this. First of all, the political and economic system we have is not robust. It's highly susceptible to shocks. But secondly, all these things we were told were impossible oh, governments can't borrow beyond a certain point, universal basic income, don't be ridiculous, of course we can't house homeless people, all, all of these things we were told, sadly, we just can't do that, there is no alternative, immediately turn out to be possible when the need arises and governments want to do it. And so we say, oh, so hang on a minute, it was just a lack of political will. Mm. The only thing that stands between us and the better world that we, we might want is a lack of political will. So let's work out what world we want and then let's use every democratic tool in the toolbox to achieve that world. And we can do so in the knowledge that radical change is possible.
0: And to achieve that radical change, George says we need to come up with a new story.
4: So we are creatures of narrative. The trick that we have learnt, in fact, more than learnt, which is hardwired into our brains, is to look for a story that explains our situation, uh, whatever that situation might be, which tells us where we stand, how we got there, where we're trying to get to, and how we're going to get to that place.
0: George Mombio picks up this idea from the TED stage. And it's not just stories in
4: general that we are attuned to, but particular narrative structures. There are a number of basic plots that we use again and again. And in politics, there is one basic plot which turns out to be tremendously powerful. And I call this the restoration story. It goes as follows. Disorder afflicts the land, caused by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the hero will revolt against this disorder fight those powerful forces against the odds, overthrow them, and restore harmony to the land. You've heard this story before. It's the Bible story. It's the Harry Potter story. It's the Lord of the Rings story. But it's also the story that has accompanied almost every political and religious transformation going back millennia. In fact, we could go as far as to say that without a powerful new restoration story, a political and religious transformation might not be able to happen.
0: It's that important. After... George says we don't have to go back too far to hear that restoration story. It's what we heard during the Great Depression.
4: Disorder afflicts the land caused by the powerful and nefarious forces of the economic
0: elite which have captured the world's wealth. But the
4: hero of the story.
0: And the when that restoration story fell apart, neoliberals came up with their own version. You never guess what's coming. <laughs> Disorder afflicts the land, <laughs> caused by the powerful
4: and nefarious forces of the overmighty state. But the hero of the story, the entrepreneur, will
0: fight. But once that narrative crumbled with the 2008 recession, George says we never came up with a new one, and that's a problem.
4: And that is why we're stuck. Without that new story, we are stuck with the old failed story that keeps on failing. Despair is the state we fall into when our imagination fails. When we have no story that explains the present and describes the future... Hope evaporates. Political failure is at heart a failure of imagination.
0: So George, what is the story that we need right now to help us focus on the future and maybe the greater good?
4: So my very rough sketch of the story would go as follows. The world has been thrown into disorder by the powerful and nefarious forces of neoliberalism who have torn society apart in their efforts to atomize and rule, ripping down our economic safety nets, ripping down our public services. But the heroes of the story, who, who is potentially almost all of us, can, against the odds, work to overthrow those powerful and nefarious uh, forces by rebuilding community, by creating, through mutual aid, the powerful communities which we have an almost innate disposition to try to create. And through those communities, we start to build a far more participatory, deliberative democracy than we tend to have at the moment. And in doing so, by rebuilding community, by showing that there is such a thing as society, we can restore harmony to the land. I admit that all this sounds like a bit of a tall order. But I believe that in Western nations, there is actually a story like this waiting to be told. Over the past few years, there's been a fascinating convergence of findings in several different sciences, in psychology, in anthropology, in neuroscience, in evolutionary biology. And they all tell us something pretty amazing, that human beings have got this massive capacity for altruism. Sure, we? all have a bit of selfishness and greed inside us, but in most people those are not our dominant values. We survived the African savannas despite being weaker and slower than our predators and most of our prey by an amazing ability to engage in mutual aid. And that urge to cooperate has been hardwired into our minds through natural selection. These are the central, crucial facts about humankind our amazing altruism and cooperation?
0: I want to ask you about this moment that we're in right now. We are facing two crises: the pandemic, the protests happening across the U.S. And it, you know, it feels like this country is being pulled at the seams sometimes. But could this be a turning point?
4: It could be. And the land has certainly been thrown into disorder. So, heroes wanted. And basically, this is where we have to come together. And I I think we've all become even more aware of the urgent and desperate need for restoration. A harmonious land is a land without injustice. It's a land in which all people are equal and have equal rights. It's a land in which we live within natural limits so that we don't destroy our own livelihoods and the prospects of future generations. And so what we're looking at is a political economy which is based on fairness. Fairness towards each other, fairness towards the living world, fairness towards people who are currently marginalised, ensuring that everybody's needs are fully met No one is excluded. No one is shoved to the sides of the economy, shoved to the sides politically. Um, And we start to rebuild. We restore through building
0: community. I guess I'm wondering how you bring everyone together when the story that Americans, and actually those in many other countries, are telling themselves is that we are more divided than ever.
4: Well, our politics and our societies have been deliberately polarised. And, and we are very divided. But in a way, you know, one of our powerful dominant values is belonging. We all strongly feel a need to belong to something. And if we don't feel we belong to something, we desperately cast around to find something where we feel we can fit in and be recognised and known and express our humanity. And there are really two kinds of belonging. There's what psychologists call bonding networks and what they call bridging networks. And bonding networks is where you say, I belong to people who are like me, who look like me, who talk like me, and everybody else is an alien and are threatening. And that can often be a very toxic form of belonging and it's taken to its extreme in the form of fascism. But then there's bridging networks where you create belonging by creating shared interests with people who might be very different to yourself, very different backgrounds, don't look like you, don't talk like you, but where you say, oh, we've got something in common, we both want a better neighbourhood. And what we've seen in the United States has been a tremendous expression of bridging community, of creating bridging networks, bringing together different communities to fight for justice side by side. And that's exactly the sort of restoration that we need to see.
0: So when we look back, I don't know, let's say 20, 30, 50 years from now, what do you think we'll say about this time? What story do you think we'll be telling each other?
4: I hope very much that 2020 will be seen as a tipping point, a time of dreadful crisis and injustice where people were exposed through government neglect, to a horrible pandemic and many, many people died unnecessarily, where we saw horrendous expressions of institutional racism, but also where we've seen an incredible community response right across the world. People helping each other through the pandemic and people standing shoulder to shoulder against institutional racism and oppression. And, and I think the combination of that mutual aid and that incredible power of civil disobedience that we've seen unleashed in recent days. This could be a turning point. This could be the moment at which it becomes unsustainable to try to maintain power in its current form, this oppressive power, this power over people rather than mobilising the power of people. This could be the year in which the people reclaim power over our own lives, and we start turning this into a world fit for its people. This is my hope, that we look back on this time as the Great Reset.
0: George Mombio, You can see his full talk at TED.com. Thank you so much for listening to our show this week about the greater good. To learn more about the people who were on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpur, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motesham, James De J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, and Matthew Cloutier, with help from Daniel Shukin and Yen Tsiong. Our theme music was written by Ramtin Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Manush Zamorodi and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour... From NPR.
1: Want all of NPR without relying on your radio? Visit npr.org to be connected to your local station wherever you are and wherever the news takes you. Get your vital mix of rigorously reported local and national stories all live, free, and at your fingertips at npr.org.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The news can feel incredibly overwhelming.
1: For a breath of much-needed fresh air, head to NPR.org's Culture section. From the buzzy movies, tiny desk, and artists that everyone seems to know about, type in NPR.org for the latest and greatest in the pop culture universe.